full-service radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Full-service radio. <laughs> I know every time we gotta stay with the start it with the dance party. Start it with the dance party. Hey, 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 get it, get it, get it. It's the fashion, 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 fashion. Ow, hello, everybody. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Beauty Archeo, your fashion history comedy podcast, broadcasting live on full service radio at the Line Hotel in Washington, D.C. <laughs> I have to do so many facial expressions <laughs> so I can remember all of that. Monica's looking at me being like, oh, just like, just, oh, oh there's another one. Oh, and one. also that. Yes. <laughs> also that. <laughs> From the glass enclosed. From the glass enclosed nerve center. It kind of is the glass enclosed nerve center. We're literally in a fishbowl here, yes. Of the Line Hotel. It's kind of interesting. It is. Whoa. Did it, it just got just quiet. Really quiet. It just got quiet. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> Bring it down. Bring it down. Bring it the down. dance party got us too excited. <laughs> we always get way too excited. Welcome. How are you, Monday? I'm great. How are you doing, baby? I'm good. I'm doing really well. I'm your host, Professor Noir, everyone. If yes. you don't recognize this beautiful, beautiful, sultry voice. Mm. And this is my co-host, Mix Monday. Yes, Mix Monday in the mix. Mix Monday in the mix in the house. On the ones and the twos and the threes and the fours. Yes. <laughs> we out here so much has happened this week true um i always say i'm not going to talk so much about the politics that happened in the world because it's just crazy but <laughs> it reached a, it reached another crazy point i mean this seriously week. dude um i don't know what you're doing sir who has been elected and hired as president i don't call you my president not but my president. you really need to bring it to like a comatose one i can't you know you need to bring it to like a vegetable zero you need to just shut the fuck up <laughs> like I'm stop in talking really, like full-on denial stop talking stop talking it's too much because if i always say it like this this is my problem is that this person who is acting like this is doing this at work the job of the president is still a job. That is a job. That is work. Yeah. If we had gone, if we go to our any kind of job, like say we are program managers in a nonprofit, <laughs> you know, not even the secretary, a program manager in a nonprofit, we're middle right. management, you know, got bitches answering to us. Mm-hmm. If we acted like that even remotely or said even those things remotely that he has said this entire time. Would you still have a job, Monday? Hell no. I'd be if I was tweeting all my opinions on everything as I was supposed to be doing my job. Your racist and very controversial opinions, you would not right. have a job. Absolutely not. You know what I mean? So like why does this person have this job if they can't even adhere to simple federal guidelines for employers and employees it's an in the work question. in the workplace? Like why do you have this job? You know what I mean? Like and your comments on, you know, like you flip flop so much that how can you be trusted? It's just, I'm, I will meet you halfway. Do you know why people don't like you? Because you flip flop too much. You know, not even, let's just exit out even the racist shit. Let's just talk about the fact that like you're with the Jews one moment and then you say some crazy shit about Jewish people the next. You know what I mean? Like, this is why people can't trust you on just a basic human level. No one likes flip flops. No one likes flip flops. In real life or in fashion. Or in fashion. Just, it's just a big old no. 
I mean, let's not even talk about the fashion. I can't. I can't. (laughs) Let's not even talk about the fashion. But yeah, it's this is too much. Is that a wine bottle on the table? Oh, we're FAF here at the line. Ooh, that's cute. It's so like (laughs) glass like. (laughs) Squirrel. Um, Squirrel. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, not to mention the fact that our, you know, incredible oh my god I know, oh my right? god speaking of squirrel there are t- see we can't be in a glass enclosed nerve center because there are too many cuties that walk through the line like hotel. she is fine you can take a picture of us girl it's fine sir like let us know this man is real sexy he's taking a picture of our beautiful sign that says on 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 in many many different lit up letters and <laughs> frankly i can't concentrate because you know now pussy just wants to get on it's like if he if he was our president, nothing would be a problem because <laughs> we would just stare into his eyes. Oh, <laughs> Obama, I miss your sexy I'm, ass. I miss your sexy ass, Obama. Um, on lighter news, um, a dear friend of mine and designer, Evan Ibrahim, um, yes. is launching a t-shirt line called Threadskin. Yes. He is so um, incredibly talented. He's very talented. He's done um, most of all of my costumes for the past year. Um, all of my looks for the Hershorn Ball this past summer. We continue to make things together, continue mm-hmm. to create couture together. It's a wonderful collaboration. So, like, Threadskin, you can follow it on Instagram. Threadskin is T H R E A D S K I N, exactly how it sounds. Um, follow it on Instagram. Um, the t shirts are, the great thing is the t shirts are embroidered instead yeah, of printed. That embroidery work that he's been doing is really next level. It's really beautiful. Um, and it's a lot of line drawings, um, some erotic, some just conceptual. And I encourage people to definitely, you know, support Evan and buy a t-shirt. They're really beautiful. They're not going to fade, you know, when you put them in the laundry. They're very simple, but like make a beautiful statement. Like I have, I have one of my own and I like to wear it with like a suit jacket and like have a yes. skirt suit situation, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Some like super razor sharp sunglasses. Yes. Like, you know, especially with like simple items like a t-shirt that makes a statement or something. I feel so, it's so important to support local artists. Yeah. Don't be buying some shit from H&M. Buy something from an artist who is locally making their stuff, yeah. not getting from some sweatshop or whatever. You know, it's important. And I will also take that term a little bit higher because I feel that people, when they think local artists, they do think kind of just craft work. I would say just look at domestic artists. Yeah. You know, totally. like, like, we'll elevate that word to say domestic artists, domestic artistry, domestic craftsmanship. Totally. There's um, a company called Extra Vitamins that I'm obsessed with. What's the name again? Extra Vitamins. Ooh. Definitely check out their Instagram. Do they give you free biotin when you buy a piece? I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, but always free stickers. Or like 5-HTP. Like. <laughs> I know, right? I need some GABA. I need some 5-HTP. You know, give me some Valerian root. Like, <laughs> is that what they give you? Because I'm really into Extra Vitamins. <laughs> It's they're they're so dope. They do collage work, and as soon as I can, I definitely want them to do all my merch. Ooh, I'm into that. Mm -hmm. So, how can you find them though? They are at Extra Vitamins on Instagram. Their Instagram is so cool. They always are using like gender free models, really interesting looking people of all shapes and sizes. Love it. And um, they're a couple. They're partners in life and in business. Cool. They're just really wonderful people. Yeah. Awesome. You know. Um, I, on, a, on another happy note, performance-wise, I did a very crazy weekend of performances this past weekend, and I performed at Woodhall, the sex workers conference. Oh, that's right. You were talking about that. Yes. Advocating for sex workers' rights globally. Yes. So important. Um, it seems like. And 
can I just tell you, I ninja kicked off the stage. Bitch, of course you did. No, oh like, God. no, like Marvel comic style, like in X-Men heels. style, in heels, yes. stilettos, ah. ninja kicked, got height on that bitch. Oh, shit. Off the stage, landed like right on like the one knee. I was going to say, how was your landing? Like the landing was like perfect. <laughs> no, I mean like full on comic book style ninja yes. kick. It was amazing. Um, but even more so, I love the environment of that space mm-hmm. because it is a very sexually free space in the sense that you feel, one, comfortable to express your sexuality, yeah. but then two, feel even more comfortable that your sexuality will be received in that space. Beautiful. So yeah, it was really cool. Um, I met Nina Hartley again, very right. famous porn legend, yes. um, who seems to really, really like my work. Yeah. And I'm a huge fan of her, and she's mm-hmm. fabulous, not just because of what she's done in pornography, but what she does for sex workers around the world, and how she has really extended the rhetoric of current sexual behavior and sexuality and the expression of and how things like pornography are not just seedy businesses but there are many institutions that are there to serve a purpose absolutely um even though it may just seem like something dirty for you it's actually serving a purpose and so like sexual you know again sexual expression serves a huge purpose in society it's a very vital part of society absolutely so and also one of the oldest forms of entertainment and sex work is one of the oldest professions yeah. and we need to protect our sex workers yeah so they exactly can stay safe. exactly exactly um so it was really cool Loved Dope. it. Then I did Gay Bash, which was even more fun. Oh, shit. Yes. And just wild, totally different crowds, which just both just wild. Um, and then I, on Tuesday, I hosted the postseason finale at Trade. Oh, yeah. And did my show Sissy that Tuesday. Yeah. Um, did you see the finale? I have not seen it. Don't ruin it for me. Oh, my God. I've been working too much. <laughs> I hate you so much because I really want to talk about that. But now we got to wait till next week okay. to talk about the finale. <laughs> I promise to binge watch by next Friday. You better binge watch by next <laughs> Friday. Because actually, it's funny. Um, they did talk about a person um, that we have talked about on the show with Anna, um, Tracy Norman. And her storyline weaves into there, into the last episode. And I was very, very blown by that. Very much so. They awesome. They really did their homework for that one. Love it. Um, so yeah, Pose. Um, and then this weekend is another fun-packed weekend. This weekend's about to be wild. It's going to be wild. Well, I, you're going to New York. Yes. yes. I don't know why. Just to be in New York? I'm going to the city to support a few of my friends who are doing really dope parties. My friend Sanam is spinning at this rad yacht party. Oh, there's a yacht party? Ooh, bitch. It's a three-floor yacht. It's this is your be second like yacht this level. summer. I'm living that boat life this you're summer. Living that I don't boat know life. how that happened. I'm living that country house life this summer. <laughs> Look at us in our El Decor vacation moments. <laughs> I don't even know how it's happening. You know, Conde Das travel. Yes, but I was just telling Jack I'm actually going to be trying to take some meetings and just like meet with other like-minded people to work on some collaboration for some electronic dance music, stuff like that. Fabulous. Yeah. Fabulous. If you're not my horizon. If you're not listening to Mundy's music, please go on mundymusic.com. Yes. Uh, yeah, M-U-N-D-Y-M-U-S-I-K on all of the things. Instagram um, is the best place to follow. They have madness. an amazing voice. Like, <laughs> Aww, thank the you. Most, they, like I always say, it wakes the dead. So. Oh, my god! In a good way, not like scratching cats. Like, <laughs> an amazing voice. I got to have a really wonderful experience um, at a showcase at Union Stage mm-hmm. Wednesday night. Ooh. Um, my friend Rachel um, opens, does an open mic there, and she chose like her favorite 
open mics. Open mic. Shows her favorite people to showcase for remember, the night. Remember when we did that open mic for Real Housewives with Potomac? Yo. Oh my god, remember that? That was, was such like two years ago? a surreal experience. You guys, we were on Real Housewives of Potomac. We were on Real Housewives of Potomac. Like filmed and everything. Oh my god, they loved us so much to our faces and then read us for filth. And they read us for filth behind our backs. Because it's their bags. job. Yeah, it's their job. <laughs> But ninety, not, but like ninety percent of the shots of me were of my butt, which I was very, I was very happy about. Yeah. I was like, you guys really like my booty. Yes, and, and I'm up leather. there like twitching and glitching twitching. out like I do. <laughs> and she was like, oh, I didn't know we were supposed to match our shirt to our eyebrows to our hair to our. And I'm like, yes, bitch, it's called coordination. Yeah, it's like how you match your shade to Get your hatred it. to your negative energy. Okay. It all connects, clearly. I don't know how you don't know that. <laughs> Coordination. You wear your shade like a Chanel suit. Ooh. Right? Speaking of. That's a lyric right there. Yeah. Ooh, that is a lyric. No one's stealing that. Write that down, Monday. I'm that shit down. That's right. That is right there. Yes. And that's also a great transition to, to, to what we're supposed to be talking about today. <laughs> shady ass Coco motherfucker <laughs> Chanel. Because she was so shady. And we're going to talk about that. I love her. But I swear to God, I, I will say this. If she, if she was someone I knew back in the day... I probably would have punched her in the face. And probably. I wanted, I would never hit a woman, but she would drive me to that point of just being like, I would just end up punching the wall because she was so extra. Um, but we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the life and times of crazy ass Coco Chanel. Hey. Like doing music, like trying to like jam out with people is like trying to do double dutch. Have you yeah, ever noticed really that? Is. Like music, jam music is like a double dutch session because you're just right, like, where wait, do I jump in? Where do I jump? Where, uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, speaking of double dutch, Missy Elliott's yes? new video, they're double dutching off her braids, girl. I'm obsessed with her. I've only seen a screenshot, but I want to see the whole thing. I could not be more obsessed with her. I know, she's amazing. I love you, Missy. We, love um, you, Missy. we will we should think about we should think about Missy and explore her life more. I would love to. That Actually, be... I was really thinking about her fashion the other day. We could go off on it. Yeah, let's but we're gonna talk about Coco Chanel. Today we'll talk about Chanel. Um because um, as crazy as she was, she definitely did a lot for women's fashion, the image of women. Mm-hmm. But Coco Chanel 
was born Gabrielle Bonheur Chanel. <laughs> I have to do it like that. Because she has the most French name ever. She was born Frenchy, Frenchy, French, 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 Chanel. French McFrench a lot. Be- French McFrench a lot. Um, Gabrielle Bonheur Chanel was born in 1883 to Eugenie Jeanne Duvol, known as Jean, a laundry woman and in, who worked in a charity hospital that was run by the Sisters of Providence. And it was in Saint-Samur, and it was known as basically a poorhouse. Mm-hmm. So Chanel herself grew up from dirt poor roots. Um, and of a father who was actually never really around. Right. Um, she was uh, Jeanne's um, second child and her father, Albert Chanel's first child, basically. So Albert, so pretty much um, Jeanne had a lot of babies. <laughs> <laughs> Summary. Um, and she also had a sister named Julia who was born like pretty much a year like like, almost less than a year earlier so you know she was really getting it in she was very fertile Mm -hmm. Um, Albert Chanel was um, he was pretty much a street vendor who peddled work clothes and undergarments and he lived pretty much that nomadic kind of gypsy life Mm -hmm. he traveled around from market town to market town um, but his family resided in pretty much run down lodging so while traveling he would pretty much position his family in different places and then go out and travel from there. And then around in 1884, he married Jean Duval finally and persuaded to do so by her family um, because and it's funny because to think about this, and this plays a lot into how Chanel conducted herself later in life, is that, and from my experience in French society and in French culture, it's still kind of a thing of having family. Like whether you're poor or rich or anything, Having family, having a family name, having a background that's legitimate and having legitimate family, not like being born illegitimate, but having legitimate family in the eyes of the law is a very huge part of your identity. Mm -hmm. And so technically Chanel was born a bastard. I mean, she was born an illegitimate child. Her parents got married after she was born. Mm. And even more so, that separation in... Pardon me, just coughed a little bit. I'm going to need that, that glassy wine bottle soon. Uh, <laughs> having um, that kind of separation, broken family life left her with a sense of feeling like that bastard all of her life. And so mm. she would create whole storylines about herself that didn't really exist. So while Chanel was known, while Chanel actually did grow up very poor, um, she pretty much grew up in a poor house as a young child with her mother serving as like a laundry woman, which is like one of the poorest jobs you could do as a woman. Um, her mother died um, soon after at a very young age, at the age of 12. Um, and then her mother was, and her mother's only 32. Oh, damn. I know. Like, she was younger than us. Well, younger than me. I don't know how old you are. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know how old Mundy is. Ageless. They're, they're a space ageless spirit, That's so right. we don't know. <laughs> um, but I'm 60, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she died at the age of 32 from dun, 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 tuberculosis. Because Lord knows tuberculosis loves some 1800s, mm. like, lungs. Like, Aww. tuberculosis loved an 1800 nervous system mm. all through Europe. And um, her Chanel, Coco, or Gabrielle Chanel's father pretty much left her and her other brothers and sisters. He uh, hired his older sons out to farmers as laborers and then left his daughters in a convent. And the convent was known as Abuzin, um, which was basically an orphanage. 
Yeah, damn. Um, in this convent, it was run by the religious order of the Congregation of the Sacred Heart of Mary, which was, a, which was known to be, quote-unquote, founded to care for the poor and rejected, including running homes for abandoned and orphaned girls. Um, and a lot of these times, too, like, we're talking the 1800s. We don't, you don't have a lot of regulations, like government, you don't have any government regulations on these poor houses, on these orphanages. No. Kids were dropped off in any number of capacity. Sometimes you, and this is really interesting too, a lot of people don't understand, and this still does happen to a certain degree in some places, but you had kids whose parents were so poor they could not take care of them and would have to work in other countries and drop their kids off at an orphanage for like a year or two. Right. And then come back and pick them up. Yeah. And a lot of kids would get lost then in what was quote-unquote a system of some kind Mm -hmm. in which they would be adopted or they would just be sent to another workhouse or another poorhouse as they get get older and they would get lost in the fray and in the in without you know actual real records most of the records that were kept were church records of baptisms um communions things like that so that's how you would know how to track a kid um any illnesses those things were also tracked but you know after a certain while it wasn't um so while in this orphanage convent, Coco Chanel learned how to sew, basically, because they taught children um, useful skills, basically, how that to trade. be laborers, mm-hmm. useful trade. Mm-hmm. Um, because honestly, if they never got adopted, or if they never found a home or anything like that, they just grow up and they go off and they have to work somewhere. And that's basically happened with Coco Chanel. Um, she, at the age of 18, she outgrew the convent and she went to go live at a, another boarding house for Catholic girls in Moulin, um, in the Moulin. Mm-hmm. And at this point, she learned how, she had already learned how to sew and perfect her skills of sewing, so she became a seamstress. She also started doing something that any fabulous young person with creative skills would do, <laughs> is that she entered the beautiful world of nightclub performances. Yes. <laughs> I know, right? It's kind of amazing. Too real. So by the age of like 18, 19, she was performing in nightclubs and she was, her act was known as a um, poet, poesies? Sorry. Pazoos. I don't know where that came from. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Was known as a Pazoos. I don't know where that came from. I'm really sorry, everyone. You know how I similar on, on words. I don't even try with the French language. Yeah. I leave it all to you. <laughs> she was known as a Pazoos. And the Pazoos basically is like a performer that performs between like big acts. So they were like kind of like a warm up act, usually something comic, lighthearted, things like that. Um, even burlesque was done as a Pazoos, like comedic burlesque and things like that. And Chanel, totally. was, and Chanel was doing kind of like a mixture of comedic burlesque and comedy with a lot of songs. And she would sing this song called Who, Who Has Seen Coco? And that is how, that is the story on how she got her nickname, Coco. Oh my gosh, love that. Um, her version is, <laughs> she grew up with her aunts after her mother died and her father left her, you know, like fallen, this like... Want, you know this heiress that has been fallen from grace at a very young age and left her with her kind of like Mrs. Habersham style aunts who taught her how to sew and gave her the name Coco for Little Pet. Oh. But it wasn't that. She was just working in like she was working in nightclubs and the drag queens called her Coco. <laughs> Pretty much. Like she was she, and the thing is too is that like movies like other movies have shown it like she's doing like very feminine like very burlesque kind of performance. But in a way, I almost want to... I, like, have this vision of, of her kind of doing, like, a drag king moment. 
Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Actually, yeah. It would make sense. Like, she was already, like, messing with gendered clothes by this point. Totally. Just on her own. She wasn't, like, famous for it, but she was already doing it on her own Mm -hmm. as just, like, a regular chick. Um, And I can see her doing some kind of, like, drag king comedy because that was really popular, too. Totally, yeah. So she worked as a Pazoo's, doing her little Pazoo's thing. (laughs) Um, And then around in 1906, she went down to Vichy. And decided to, like, do the concert halls, the theaters, and the cafes in Vichy. And she became a pretty successful performer at this point. Um, however, like, Chanel's, like, youth and physical charms, how, how much, however they did impress, Vichy didn't necessarily, it wasn't necessarily, like, the gold mine she had wanted to be. So she ended up going back to Milan and working in the cabarets and the clubs there, where she met kind of the start of love affairs, the famous love affairs that bring her into becoming the woman that Mm. she becomes Mm -hmm. and really giving her honestly the means of a new lifestyle to explore herself and explore her femininity, but also her masculinity and explore fashion and how that plays a part. And so we're talking about 1906. So people, this is one of my favorite fucking periods of history. This is called the Gilded Age in America. This is the Edwardian period in England, in the British Empire. This is Art Nouveau or the Femme de Siècle in Paris. This is Jürgen Stiel in Vienna. This is the New Age. This is the start of the 20th century. Clothes have never been better. So when I'm saying clothes never better, this is like the beginnings of the actual couture industry where you have people setting up design houses and actually like getting clients, showing fashion shows to a certain degree. Actually, Charles Worth of the House of Worth, who was a very like the couturier at this point and very established career um, show technically the first fashion show in the late 1800s of a collection of clothes. So you're seeing the beginnings of this happening and it really being established. So Coco Chanel was at this point, you know, like fabulous, you know, like young 20 something cabaret singer and dancer (laughs) and like meeting people and like having admirers. And she catches the eye of Etienne Balzan. Um, And she becomes Balzan's mistress. And Etienne Balzan is a French ex French ex cavalry officer. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, she got money. Right. Because usually, like, officers at this period, during, like, the, imper- the, during the empire period, they're usually people of, like, aristocratic background. Right. So Balzan had money. Mm-hmm. And he provided her with, like, the means to be fabulous, basically. And yes. this is where she gets exposed to, like, the really high-brow echelons of French society. That's her first exposure to it. But she's doing it in her own way, where she's pushed to, the, like, the feminine like norms or the feminine standards of small waists and you know a big bust and long tresses of gowns and and petticoats and topples of hair flowing upon the head and being pushed more and she's trying to go against that she's like this is uncomfortable this is not me because as much as I love having this lifestyle I want to ride horses and hunt like the men and like do all this other stuff because like I'm still a chick from you know the poor countryside And so she doesn't really necessarily fit in with French society. But the thing about French society and the fin de siècle is that 
people who are individuals who really know their sense of self, yes. those people really make a statement at this time. So she becomes even more desired upon. Fascinating. And yes. people want to become more fascinated by mm-hmm. her. Mm-hmm. And it is from here, this kind of lifestyle that she learns to, like I said before, create a sense of style. She starts experimenting more with like men's clothes right. and wearing like men's, you know, riding gots to go like, fox hunting and wearing men's smoking jackets and smoking cigars and things like that. Um, around this time, she, meet Bal- she meets Balzan's friend, Captain Arthur Edward Capel, also known as Boy Capel, who pretty much is like, how can I say this? He is the sh in Chanel. Do <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Like he put the sh in Chanel. Uh-huh. Um, it was Boy Capel's love affair with Chanel that was like the most groundbreaking and earth shattering love affair um, that she had ever had. This is where she really learned about how to be herself as an independent woman and be supported by another person, even a man, and especially a man, yeah. which. You know, I personally don't think with her background that she fully always trusted men. Mm-hmm. She always kept a good head on her shoulders and being aware of men, not to get dicked the fuck over by men. Right. Well, her father left her. Her father left her. You know, she had to fend for herself, especially growing up in an orphanage. I'm pretty sure she yeah. definitely had to fend for herself. And so Boy Capel really opened up this whole, you know, a whole new world for her more than Balzan did with his own with his money. And around, I want to say it was 1918. Um, we see the beginnings of the first Chanel store. Before that, around 1912, um, after meeting Boy Capel, because she met him in 1908, Mm -hmm. um, she begins experimenting with making pieces and making clothing. She started wearing very simple hats to all of the um, horse races at Longchamp. Mm. And which is basically the French ascots. And um, she was wearing very simple hats. So everyone was wearing these huge plumes. I mean, literally, there, was, there were laws by 1905 where you couldn't hurt, hunt certain birds in Europe because the, the population was going extinct it because the of hats. Yeah. Before hats. Because of hats and nested bird feasts. And nested but, bird yes. feasts. Anyway. Yes. So <laughs> this is how luxurious people were living. Yes. Just so you guys know. <laughs> like, if you think you live in cute now with like a Damien Hurst, like diamond skull, like they were just giving those out as going away gifts to mate. It's like you ain't doing nothing. Okay, at this at this time, Maxime's restaurant filled the dining room with water so the people could act like they're eating on a ship inside the restaurant where they could have just gone down the street to a boat. Okay, they were that rich. Okay, so you think you're living cute right now, you ain't living cute. But she was, Chanel was. Okay. okay. <laughs> and so she was wearing these like very simple hats around like these very extravagant crowds. And the women though were very intrigued by it. Right. Some women were disgusted. Some women were very intrigued. And she started getting requests from these women to like make her a hat, make me a hat, make me a hat, make me a hat. And she was like, fuck it. I think I should really do this as a business and make these bitches pay for it yeah. because they're fucking rich and they should be paying for these things. Mm-hmm. And then I can get rich. And so <laughs> she started making motherfucking hats. Yeah. And by 1910, she became a licensed milliner and opened her first boutique at 21 Rue Cambon in Paris. That is still to this day the home and the and the headquarters of the entire Chanel operation. That's amazing. Still to this day. When I lived in Paris I actually visited and I almost cried because I could just feel the energy. Totally. Of just so much fashion history. And also if you ever go in the boutique anyone, they're so nice. 
They're so, oh my God, they were so nice. Really? They gave me free gift bags. What? Yeah, I didn't even buy anything. Because <laughs> I was just like, I just love Chanel and I've just been studying and blah, blah, blah. And she was just like, I have something for you. And gave me and my friend like free like gift bags of just Chanel goodies. That's amazing. It was the most amazing experience of my life. I literally almost cried. I I'm definitely su- I'm surprised you didn't actually I, cry. I, I think there was maybe, a tear. I almost threw tear. up, frankly. Oh my god. <laughs> Overwhelmed was, with all of the feelings. It was. <laughs> it was. It was. So anyway, so at 21 Rue Cambon, um, we see the beginnings of genius happening in the fashion industry. First starting with hats. And then by 1913, Chanel opens another shop in Deauville in Biarritz, um, where she starts doing apparel with the hats. Mm-hmm. So it started as a hat shop and she started doing apparel. By 1914, this is very interesting because we enter World War One, right. And this is when Chanel's actual stardom launches. And so by World War One, people have to understand the social structure and the aristocratic structure of empirical Europe completely breaks down. Right. Maids, servants are leaving the house. This is a very specific point. I mean, a lot of other things are happening. This is a very specific point. Maids, servants, and people that ran the household, that dressed the masters, that dressed the ladies, they have left the house now. They're doing independent work in factories, they're moving to cities, or they're going off to war. Right. And so women and men had to learn how to dress themselves and do things for themselves. And Chanel, serving a higher echelon of crowd already, already came from that sensibility. And she created clothes that responded to that, that responded to her own style of experimenting with menswear, experimenting with fabrics and pieces that were easy to wear and easy to put on. And she create, and that's where the Chanel look comes from. And yeah. that's where it starts from. It starts from a wartime look. Also, it starts from the fact that there wasn't a lot of extravagance anymore with dining in like, you know, bird's nest soups and like all these things and eating pretty much eating like creams and champagnes and like, yeah. you know, this, this whole idea of like the thin body started becoming fashionable because it was a response to what was happening in war with rationing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the disappearance of the waist, the letting go of the corset. Right. I mean, um, a lot of those pieces that people were wearing, they literally physically could not dress themselves. They could not they dress had themselves. to have people you to had dress, to dress them. Th- you had to have someone dress them. Right. And so she created clothes that allowed women to dress themselves and allowed mm-hmm. women to remain sophisticated and keep their shit together in the face of complete and utter turmoil because you had no idea what was going to happen with this war. I will say, though, that Coco Chanel was not the first designer to take women out of corsets, but Marjane Lacroix in 1905 in Paris at Longchamp was the first woman to take first person to take women out of corsets. Right. We spoke about her with the bra episode. Yes, and I've mentioned her before, but she was the first person to take women out of corsets in fashion. Like, and it was a huge, huge statement. So, again, Chanel probably being at Longchamp when that happened, mm-hmm. you know, saw the possibilities. Yeah. And respond to the possibilities and said, you know what? We need to start selling this shit because these women need this and they need to stop trying to dress themselves because they look a hot mess. <laughs> Another thing that Chanel then ended up doing after World War One is that her style and image continued to create the, the modern woman of, uh, in the modern era of the 1920s. Um, yes. And one of the things I thought was really interesting is that in the Edwardian and Belle Epoque period, um, heavy jewelry and diamonds and pearls were very much so in fashion. Yes. And Chanel continued that, that statement, but with very streamlined clothes. But instead of doing like real diamonds, she did fake jewelry. That's what I was going to talk about. Yeah. And you have a thing about that. What were you going to say about the fake jewelry? Because that is a huge thing about, again, the idea of modernity 
and um, even the creation of wealth and the idea of creating a sense of wealth was what and what she did as well with her own self. But what were you going to say? Well, you know, usually people would have maybe one or two pieces of jewelry. Yeah, because exactly. Because if it was real jewelry, it was very expensive. It, it was usually a gift. Unless you're a Vanderbilt, then you had jewelry cases <laughs> well, in all your houses. Right, exactly. But she was the one that began to create high-end costume jewelry. Exactly. And then would layer in the costume jewelry with the real jewelry. So she was the one that started, like you said, with the very streamlined silhouette, but then like shitloads of pearl streams and things like that. And enamel. Yes. And she hooked up with a very fabulous company who we are trying to go away from, but you know, they have their time and I, I applaud them. Um, but the Bakelite Plastic Company. Oh, true. In the 1920s, in the mid 1920s, she up with Bakelite Plastic and created Bakelite Chanel jewelry, mm-hmm. and you know, faux and faux stones and things like that. Yeah, and, and then she also came up with the uh, the Maltese cross cuff, which was a big deal because that was when she brought in um, Duke Folco, and he became the head of her jewelry design. You know. All of that. and um, But you know, but again, like I said before, when you think about the clothes against the jewelry, it's almost like a blank slate. And, you know, Mundy is showing me the very famous picture of Chanel, which I wanted, you should post I'm that gonna right put now this on the, yeah, on the Instagram. <laughs> We're putting uh, it on the Instagram. If you don't already follow us, you absolutely should the be. The beauty archeo, the beauty archeo. Um, and the thing is, as well, that I think is so interesting about Chanel's jewelry is that she... Like I said before, it responded again to the person that she always was, which is she was a tough bitch. She was a correct bitch, but she was also a lion bitch. <laughs> and she created a lot of she created a lot about herself that just wasn't true. And that image of fabulosity, whether or not you could afford it, whether or not you can afford it. And I think that she understood what she was doing. She understood the market in it and she went for it and she said you know what if I'm gonna lie these bitches are gonna buy this lie okay. and that's what she did high price lies high price lies low low rent <laughs> realness <laughs> we just lost that one no low maintenance high price lies low maintenance realness okay yes alright yes we're writing a song here you are witnessing the creation of a song and we're gonna call it Chanel <laughs> We're going to call it fucking We're going to call, <laughs> call it sh- um, So in the 1920s, Chanel, you know, had conquered the, the world of accessories with hats by this point. She now conquered the world of couture, for women's couture. She had one more avenue to conquer when it came to fashion and beauty, and that was the beauty market. And she went out, set out to create a perfume. And she was very fed up with the very heavy perfume traditions of French perfumery. Perfumery, at, by this point, still used heavy oils and resins and condensed and very dense flower concentrations to create lasting fragrances right. that had to be aged for almost a year to two years to be worn. Chanel's fragrance, and why a lot of people question maybe why Coco or why Chanel Number no. 5... Um, is still so popular and it is still, you know, uh, uh, an invention really that changed the world is because it was one of the, it was the first fragrance to use multiple notes. Right. And the first fragrance to use multiple, um, uh, multiple um, chemical aromas. Right. Aroma chemicals. 
um, false chemical or false aromas, basically. Right, not just like whale fat or whatever. And not just whale fat. And that one, and the one that's very distinct is the aldehydes. That's what it is. And it was the and it was the chemical faux aldehyde that changed the Chanel fragrance and made it what it is. And aldehyde, the one that's used, it's a, it's a almost like a chem, it's almost like a fragrance note that gives other fragrances. I like to think of it almost like a watery note, sometimes soapy. Very cool. Very cool. Scent. It's a very cool scent. It's very sharp. Mm-hmm. And it really sharpens up a fragrance. It can be very musky, very floral. Chanel, the one in Chanel number five is very soapy. Mm-hmm. And they used it in one, two, three, four, five, six different um, formulations of it with four drops of aldehyde. In the fifth one, though, he accidentally put five drops of aldehyde. And that is why it is called Chanel Chanel number five. Chanel number five. That's a great fun fact. Yes. A lot of people equated to, and this is even an interview she said, like, people equated to, she went to a psychic and they said number five was her, (laughs) you know, her number or the fact that it was the number fifth bottle. But it was actually the fact that it was actually five drops of aldehyde. That makes it Chanel number five. That's a really good fun fact. It's really, really interesting. Yes. Um, from there, you know, this fragrance catapulted Coco Chanel into a whole other world of money, of access, and of independence. And sadly enough, I will say this, is that that fragrance was bought by another company or another family, a Jewish family, which is the same Jewish family that still owns Chanel to this day, but they... And she only received 17% of the profits from Chanel Number no. 5. Whoa. Yeah. And they, and they get the rest. That was in her contract. And oh. she had been suing them all her life. I bet. So change that shit up. I bet. Right? <laughs> Whoops. I know. I know. I know. Um, so by this point, you know, Chanel has been catapulted into a high fashion world. And we are going into the 1930s. And I'm actually going to pause here because we're coming to our time and we're coming a little bit short, but I want to pause here because I want to go into next week and do a part two about this. Okay. There's so much we can talk about with Coco Chanel and I don't want to condense it. It's like she's had so many lives. She's had so many lives. And it's interesting because there are a lot of movies about Coco Chanel out, um, her and Igor Stravinsky, which right. we did not talk about relationship, which oh my we will. Yeah. Um, um, more about Boy Capel and Balzan. Um, and then just her career in the 1920s, which people always glaze over in these movies. Her career in the 1930s, which people always glaze over in these movies. People always glaze over the successful aspects of, Ch- of young Chanel, which really pisses me off. Yeah. I mean, the 20s, that's definitely my favorite Because part. I would like to know how she was. And I will leave you with this. Because by 1919, Boy Capel, sadly enough, was killed in an automobile accident. And that was... And still as known, and she said to the day she died, that that was the love of her life. Aww. And it was out of his death that the legend has it that she created the little black dress oh, to wow. honor him. But she still had to be public and she still had to run her company. Taking that tragedy and turning it into power. And turning it into power and yes. owning it and creating the jewelry that goes with it. And so we're going to stop here and we're going to continue on with Chanel next week in the 1930s. And twenty the nineteen twenties, thirties, and definitely into that little nasty ass forties moment that she had with the Nazis, because that's some juicy shit. Um, you know, Coco, I just want you to, to know if you're listening, I respect you, um, 
and you know we're gonna talk about your we're gonna talk about your your shit we're gonna put you on blast we're gonna put you on blast but it's all with love but just all with love don't bring the (laughs) don't bring the fashion gods on me and try to curse me with wardrobe malfunctions yes (laughs) oh my goodness well kids that is our show you're listening to the beauty archeo your fashion history comedy podcast i'm your host professor noir with next monday we got some travels to do we got some travels and we'll be back next week to talk about all of our fun travels and more on coco chanel goodbye Bye.